Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel. Uh, My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Carol Berger, whose book is titled The Child Soldiers of Africa's Red Army, The Role of Social Process and Routinized Violence in South Sudan's Military, which was published by Routledge in 2022. In the book, Dr. Berger examines the role of social processes and routinized violence in the use of underage soldiers in the country that is now known as South Sudan, looking at the civil war before South Sudan became a country and thinking about the implications since then. She draws on the accounts of a number of South Sudanese who went through these processes themselves um, and therefore sheds light on how the exploitation of children and youth was not a one-off thing that happened, but was actually quite organized and intentional. Um, So this book raises a lot of really interesting questions and brings us into aspects of military life that are often quite uh, hidden away. So there's a lot to learn from the research from Dr. Berger, and so I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be interviewed by you. So I wanted to start off with a bit of an introduction. Um, And as you mentioned at the very beginning of your book, this book comes out of research, not just from your doctorate, but from your master's as well um, in Canada and in the UK. So it quite clearly spans a number of years of committed research and a lot of interviews. So how did you come to this research area? Do you know, I traveled to Khartoum, Sudan, in 1981, and shortly after became the stringer for the BBC African Service. I lived in Sudan for the next eight years. And during that period, of course, the war between North and South Sudan began in late 1984. And I still remember the day when I was looking at the daily printouts from the Sudan News Agency. It would have been probably early 1985, and there was a two-paragraph story saying that South Sudanese children had been sent to Cuba. And this was, you know, one of those strange stories, and then the war continued, and there were many other things happening. And then 13 years later, after working in the Middle East, after Sudan as a journalist again, I returned to Canada, where I'm from, And I was in the city of Edmonton, and I heard talk that there were South Sudanese in Edmonton who were speaking Spanish. And I thought, oh my goodness, these are the children that were sent to Cuba. And within a rather short period of time, I managed to connect with this community of South Sudanese who had recently emigrated from Cuba to Western Canada. And that's how it began. I had started taking some anthropology courses at the University of Alberta, and it seemed like a good fit. There were all of a sudden 250 
South Sudanese who come from Cuba, most of them living in my home province of Alberta in Western Canada. And that's how the masters came together. And then when I had the opportunity to do a doctorate at Oxford University, I wanted to continue because there were many unanswered questions about who these individuals had been and who the larger population of underage soldiers had been. And I think that uh, certainly reading the book, I'm glad you didn't stop at the Masters. Um, Certainly a lot came out of that that seems really interesting. Um, But I'm glad that we get so many other additional aspects to the story as well. Um, So to start off with that larger group of children, we will definitely come back to the specific group that was sent to Cuba. Um, But starting with the title of the book, The Red Army, what was the Red Army? What were its stated goals? What were its actual goals? What was this? It's good to remember that during the North-South Civil War, which we generally consider began in 84 and ended in 2005, that the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, was nominally linked to the East Bloc. And this was largely due to the fact that neighboring Ethiopia, then led by Mengistu Halmarium, was linked to the East Bloc. So it came that there were large numbers of underaged youth who did make the journey from parts of South Sudan that had been impacted by attacks from Northern Sudan. They made their way to Ethiopia. And it was understood that there were significant numbers of underaged soldiers within all of the SPLA divisions. But by 1987, it became SPLA policy under the command of Colonel John Garang to gather up the children. The order was sent to zonal commanders throughout South Sudan that they were to forcibly recruit children. And this they did. And by taking a rather long time to complete the research of this book, I was able to speak to former zonal commanders who continue to be very prominent in the SPLA in South Sudan, now known as the South Sudan People's Defense Forces. I was able to get these individuals on record, including General Kualmanyang Juke, that he himself took 7,000 children. I've also spoken to many of the men and women who survived the war and were part of those forced recruitments. And they talk of very large numbers being taken by land across the border into Ethiopia where the SPLA had refugee camps and training camps. So the Red Army became a more organized, recognized part of the SPLA. And loosely we could consider it the youth wing of the Sudan People's Liberation Army. And what were the, why? why? Why did they want children? What was the point of having an army of children? The public pronouncements surrounding the Red Army, particularly after the end of the war, you will find that veterans are very consistent in their narration of the why. They will say that John Garang told them that they were the seeds for the future of South Sudan. They will say that they were only taken to get education because of course, during the civil war, whatever education there had been was further disrupted. The reality was that there's a lot of utility 
in using underage soldiers. The SPLA needed the labor. The SPLA used these underage soldiers as bodyguards. They were the ones predominantly responsible for the laying of landmines, for acting as porters. The reality also was that by keeping these large numbers of children and youth in these terrible camps inside Ethiopia, they were able to draw humanitarian support that was later used to support the SPLA mainstream itself. And as I write in my book, the humanitarian agencies, American anti-poverty activists, politicians, people made the tours of these terrible camps where the youth were kept, where the death toll was very high because there was terrible hunger, no medical support. And inevitably, the humanitarian community, in its giving of aid to these SPLA camps, was indirectly supporting the SPLA itself. And so talking about the camps and talking about the other half of the title of your book, these camps, and it's already kind of becoming clear from what you're saying, were not nice places. And in fact, these camps were, in a lot of ways, purposely not nice places, particularly for children. Um, And it's even in the title of your book, The Social Process and Routinized Violence. So could you explain to us why there was utility in routinized violence in the recruitment and training of children in the Red Army? First of all, I would point out that the majority of the Red Army veterans were taken from one part of South Sudan. Probably 80% of all the Red Army were taken from what we call Jongle State, which is in Greater Upper Nile, on the border with Ethiopia. So these would have been people who were ethnically self-identified as Boer Dinka. And Colonel John Garang, the leader of the SPLA during these years, was himself a Boer Dinka. So what it means is most of the youth and children who were taken to these terrible camps came from the Boer Dinka community. The second largest group would have been Dinka coming from the region further to the west, Bar al-Ghazal, and there you have individuals from the different sections of the Dinka, including Dinka Agar, Dinka Rek, Dinka Malwal, Dinka Twitch. These youth were predominantly taken by the commanders by force. If parents refused to allow their children to be taken, they would be penalized or they would be beaten. And earlier today, knowing that we were going to be talking, I met with one of the Red Army veterans from the Boer area who now lives here in Cairo. And he was describing once more for me that if a parent refused to have his child taken by the SPLA, he would be physically beaten in front of his community. And he would also lose livestock or crop that he had stored. And as we know, South Sudan is a very, very tough place. If a family loses its livestock, it can mean worse than destitution. It can mean death. If a youth was taken by force by the SPLA and later escaped, the SPLA could return to the community that that youth was from and then take the cattle from the family as well. So the youth, part of this much wider community, were exploited by the SPLA with the knowledge that their families had no recourse. 
Now, of course, there was also support for the war, but the extent of the underage recruitment, the numbers involved are such that it has to be remembered that areas like Boer have never really recovered from the loss of all these youths. You mentioned the dire conditions in these camps. In particular, I would refer to Panyudu, Dima, and in Bonga, which is where the International Military Institute or War College was located. These youth were organized into teams, and these teams were required to bury the dead. And I've met several other veterans who were part of these burial teams. They were children themselves. And when you ask, how many youth did you bury? They would say between nine and 12 every day. I also was able to support my research with journals written by Red Army veterans that came into my possession. These were super harsh places. And when we talk about the routinized nature of the violence, when I asked this Red Army veteran earlier today, I said, how do we understand this? Keeping in mind that he's of South Sudan and of the Dinkabur, he said that the commanders and the trainers needed to prepare the boys to survive the rigors of war because, of course, they were sent into combat. They needed to toughen up these youth so that they could endure whatever was to come. But yes, this was an extremely violent environment. The trainers were greatly hated and people still tell stories of their comrades, the youth that they trained with who died in the training. And that came through, I think, a lot in, in the book. It really was something that even the children who were really, really young when they first began to encounter, encounter this, for obvious reasons, left quite an impact on them. Um, but I wanted to pick up on something you've already introduced us to, the idea of identity in this, and that which children were recruited, forcibly so, into the Red Army were targeted. They, they, it wasn't random. It was from particular groups in particular places. And so, in fact, you argue in the book, quote, the SPLA, despite its purported national goals, was developed as an essentially regional and fragmented collection of fighting forces. You have a number of examples in this, and it's not just about where the children come from for the Red Army. This, in fact, goes throughout the SPLA's military organization, different battalions, etc., can you explain how, um, what, what the purpose of this was? What, what, why was this seen to be useful? Um, in fact, so much that you argue it's been kept even after independence or westernization efforts of, as you said, the renamed SPLA military forces. This fragmented and regional nature of the fighting forces has nevertheless remained. Could you give us some insight into that, please? If we keep in mind the fact that it's a huge territory, it's a, a territory that doesn't have good communications or road transport, and there are many, many different languages, and each community unto itself has a geographical link. For Colonel John Garang, as leader of the SPLA, for him to have a rebel army representing all of South Sudan his strength was to recognize the disparate nature of the region and to allow local commanders to basically lead their home regions. 
And this sense of relatedness between the recruits, the soldiers who were adults, the commanders, it creates another kind of loyalty and fighting strength for the SPLA. But generally, any talk that it was a national movement, we all can recognize now that the SPLA did not have an ideology. And yes, John Garang talked about wanting to keep Sudan intact. Certainly, it was understood for the wider rank and file, separation, independence for South Sudan was the wider goal. So while people like to imagine that uh, a military force needs to be united over a large territory. I would say the reality is the strength was the fact that these were local regional forces that banded together as strategy required. But their strength was in their local nature. And that means relatedness between peoples. And so this brings me on to my next question, which goes to the topic of the children who were sent to Cuba. Um, It's, I believe, 619 children total were sent to Cuba um, in three sort of waves, I suppose. Um, And something that I found quite surprising was that the vast majority of these children were closely related to senior SPLA leaders. And so they were chosen. It wasn't a random grouping. They were highly related to these leaders, and they were purposely sent across the ocean to Cuba for what seems like when they were sent an undetermined amount of time with few contacts um, left with their connections in South Sudan. So can you explain for us a bit why was it important who these children were related to? I think it has huge ramifications for our current political situation. At the time that these youth were selected to go to Cuba, arrangements had been made between different individuals within South Sudan who had pre-existing contacts with Cuba that a certain number of youth should be sent from South Sudan and educated in Cuba. 619 were sent. 60 of those were girls or young women. Half of them were sent on a cruise ship, a Russian cruise ship that took 24 days to go from an Ethiopian port to the port of Havana. And the remainder went on a series of flights on Soviet planes. If you were an SPLA commander and you had an opportunity to send your sons and your daughters for education in Cuba, as opposed to having them in a refugee camp inside Ethiopia or in some difficult situation in the Ethiopian capital of Addis, of course you wanted to send your children for education. So John Garang sent two of his children. William Nyonbani, who was one of the founders of the SPLA, sent several of his children. All of these major commanders took advantage of this opportunity to send their children out of the theater of war in the hopes that they were going to be educated in Cuba. Now, I would add here that, as I mentioned, the vast majority of Red Army veterans were particularly from the Dinka identity group. They don't really like to acknowledge this, but this is the reality. There were a couple of Anahuac, a couple of people from Equatoria, 
a minority of Nuer, but the majority of those sent to Cuba were Dinka. But they were Dinka from John Garang's home territory of the Boer Dinka. They were sent to Cuba. They essentially got stranded there, most of them for a period of a decade, if not 13 years. When the split happened in South Sudan in 1991, and the SPLA split into two, one led by the Nuer Riyak Machar, and the other led by John Garang, this affected those who remained in Cuba. And obviously, because the situation in South Sudan was very bad, Cuba could not essentially send them back to South Sudan, nor could they send them to the bases in Ethiopia after 1991, after Mengistu was overthrown and the SPLA lost its bases in Ethiopia. So just, I realize this is a little bit overly detailed, but when John Garang died and Salva Kiir took over as president, the shift of power changed. So instead of the Boer Dinka being advantaged, it was now Dinka from Bar al-Ghazal. And because of the majority of those who were sent to Cuba and were educated were from Boer Dinka, their position in South Sudan is now altered. And they are not in the advantaged position that they once were before John Garang died. And we're going to pick up on this because my next question, I, I really, I think I'm not the only one quite curious about the 619 children and youths who were sent to Cuba from South Sudan. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened to them in Cuba? What, what were those 13 years like? Do you know... My informants generally were so protective of however I was to represent Cuba because there was a huge amount of gratefulness for what the Cubans had done for the South Sudanese. I would add that there were others who felt that they gave their labor for free for over a decade because these youth, they were put in a school on the Isle of Youth to the south of the Cuban mainland. And they were among uh, a large number of schools, a kind of international. So there was a school for Namibian students, Ethiopians, Cape Verde, Angola, Mozambique. And each of these schools was responsible for the harvesting of citrus plantations. So the students would spend half of every day working with machetes in these plantations and the other half of the day in the classrooms. At the beginning, there was a certain number of South Sudanese teachers, but over the first few years, those teachers returned to East Africa. So generally they received a Cuban education. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990-91, Cuba experienced terrible economic hardships. And this also affected the South Sudanese, who were considered to be the least privileged of all the international students being educated by Cuba. They had no other means of support other than the Cuban government. So some of my informants told me about the young women who were at school. There were then about 40 of them. And they only had 10 pairs of shoes between them. And it was mandatory to wear shoes when you went for meals and when you went to class. And so particularly for the meal times, what the girls would do is one girl would wear her shoes 
and go eat and then hurry back and give the shoes to another girl so she could go and eat. So they began to suffer hardships. The students who went on to university, then when they graduated, because they didn't have any identity papers and they weren't allowed to work in Cuba, were in trouble. Because with a declining economic situation, with the deteriorating situation back in East Africa, they were stuck in Cuba without an income, without a job. And once they finished university, they no longer had any accommodation, nor did they have access to dining facilities. So there was a certain number of the youth who worked for free in factories in order to have access to meals. So they experienced real hardships. And as my book talks about this, at a certain point, Cuba reached out to the international community, and in the end, Canada agreed to take the remaining 250 South Sudanese who were really stuck in Cuba. They couldn't go back to East Africa. The war was an internal war by this time, and they just had nowhere else to go. So Canada began taking them in 1999. And what happened to them in Canada? Do you know... I still remember when I first started meeting some of these guys, most of them spoke fluent Spanish. Very few of them had any level of English. Uh, They had to, you know, experience winter for the first time. They were trying to, you know, get work and begin their lives anew. They were also for the first time for many of them in more than 13 years reconnecting with their family in East Africa. Because while they were in Cuba, except for a few of the students who were related to very senior commanders that they were allowed to occasionally speak to them on the phone, most of them had no contact. There were letters that were forwarded by Red Cross, but these letters always contained terrible news. Someone had died, someone was missing. So when they got to Canada, they had a chance to reach out and reconnect with family members in East Africa. Where were they going to work, though? The majority of them found work in slaughterhouses. And in one of those weird twists of fate, most of these South Sudanese who'd grown up in Cuba ended up working at the biggest cattle slaughterhouse in all of Canada, a million head of cattle a year uh, at that time were processed in the town of Brooks to the east of Calgary, which is one of the big cities in Alberta. And quite by chance, this town of Brooks was like 45 minutes away from the rural community that I grew up on uh, in southern Alberta. So the South Sudanese were extremely motivated to try and earn money to send support to their families, many of whom were then in refugee camps in Kenya. So they had a huge motivation to try to support their families, even though they hadn't seen them in a very long time. And they were a highly disciplined group of people, but they'd obviously gone through a huge disruption in their personal lives in that they had been sent when they were still children or teenagers to Cuba and then not had direct contact with their homeland for many years. And... The stories of some of these individuals is really quite fascinating. Um, It's definitely something that listeners should consider reading the book for. 
um, and particularly something that we generally hearing about the Red Army might not be as familiar to listeners. But when we think about children in terms of Sudan and South Sudan, quite often we do know a different phrase, which is the lost boy. And that's something you discuss in your book um, and discuss how these identities of being a veteran of the Red Army or a, quote, lost boy of Sudan might actually overlap. Um, And you raise some really interesting possibilities about the terminology that the West uses or doesn't use. Um, And it seems like there's been quite different receptions to that argument amongst the South Sudanese who you've known for years and maybe some of the Western audiences coming to your work for the first time. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is there that overlap between Red Army veteran and Lost Boy? And how do you sort of critique Western discourse of it? The Lost Boys and Lost Girls, although they're a much smaller number, are veterans of the Red Army. But they're a special group within the larger Red Army. And they're special because I mentioned earlier that the overthrow of Mengiste Halmarium in Ethiopia led to the loss of all the SPLA base camps inside Ethiopia. And it's to be remembered that it was a terrible, terrible time when thousands and thousands of South Sudanese had to get out of Ethiopia. The SPLA came under attack. They were shelled. They were chased. They were in crisis as they were leaving southern Ethiopia and heading back to South Sudan. There was a group of SPLA that included around 3,000 Red Army that were in fact commanded by the current president of South Sudan, Salva Kiir. They had to cross the river Gilo. Large numbers were lost. They drowned. They got to the other side. And essentially, the SPLA abandoned these Red Army. And as you know, I spent a really long time on this book. And I had the benefit of traveling around South Sudan for some years. I worked really hard to find men who'd been part of that particular contingent that included the Lost Boys or the Red Army, as they're more correctly known. And when I asked, what do you mean you left them? One of the radio operators, who's now still with the SPL in South Sudan, said to me, we were on a mission. So regardless, these 3,000 youth were abandoned, and they began to walk. And over a period of some weeks, they did end up in northern Kenya and were then assisted by the UN and came to live in what became known as the Kakuma refugee camp. With the involvement with the international humanitarian community in their attempts to provide support for all these youth, This is where the term the Lost Boys began, because there was a narrative that somehow all these youth were lost as they tried to find some safety, some refuge from this war spillover and all of the chaos in South Sudan as the SPLA returned to the country. So how did this come about and what does it mean? the American government decided to take around 3,000 of these Red Army veterans, the so-called Lost Boys. And so over a period of time, they were resettled in the United States. 
and particularly Phoenix, Arizona is a center for the Lost Boys, and they've formed organizations. Certainly the media narrative was very strong, and it was all about survival, it was about resilience, it was about the terrible experience that these young men had experienced. And you might remember as well the book by Dave Eggers, What is the What?, which also tells the story of these boys wandering through the bush. I've spent a long time working on who the Red Army are, and I would say to you that it was a kind of instrumentalization of Western sympathies to refer to these Red Army veterans as lost boys. No one was lost. I mean, you don't just go get lost in Africa. But you could be part of a military contingent that abandons you, and then you could desert from that military and walk out of the theater of war and seek refuge in a neutral place, which is what these young men did. Now, the narrative of the Lost Boys, if you look at the media coverage in these particular years when it became such a big story, the narrative stays pretty true to a certain thread. There's a lion, there's people who get killed and eaten by hyenas, and yes, terrible things did happen. But if you will notice, there's also a terrific amount of discipline whereby, until quite recently, these so-called lost boys refrained from overly speaking about their relationship to the SPLA. Although over time, obviously, it's become more recognized that they were youth soldiers. But the term lost boys, for many of the Red Army veterans, they don't like this term. It offends them. They think that uh, it's ridiculous because no one was lost. They were part of an organized military force that was in crisis, and these youth had enough, and they walked into northern Kenya. I would add that in the years that followed, the SPLA continued to enter the Kakuma refugee camp where they would gather large numbers of these Red Army veterans and demand that they return to the war. And I do cover this in my book, as you know. Yes, um, it was definitely one of the one of the moments uh, that was in some ways most striking for showing the agency of the Red Army veterans um, in their response to this narrative um, and engagement with it going, this is kind of ridiculous. Um, so I am glad you included that. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so moving again towards the kind of big picture questions that you address, what do you think understanding this history of the Red Army, and especially those who survived being sent to Cuba, the ones that, um, regardless of whether they were in Cuba or not, um, you have had such contact with over many years, what do you think this history tells us about the high levels of violence within South Sudan? Do you know, I've been thinking about this question for a long time. And when I met with this Red Army veteran earlier today, thinking, you know, I'm going to just ask him a couple questions. From his perspective, this use of violence is what is required in a war situation. And I think sometimes we forget that wars are terrible, terrible things and people are trained to kill, violence happens, 
people die during training. There are terrible, terrible abuses. And I find it quite interesting when you look at any kind of militarized situation, there somehow is kind of a surprise when there is excessive levels of violence. When in reality, well, you know, this is what wars are and this is what war does to people. But I'm going to add something here. As you've seen in my book, there are very prominent individuals who for the last 30 years have been in charge of these military strategies. So when we talk about the level of violence, I think it's really important to remember that individuals have made decisions about what their military priorities are, how they affect their strategies, how they can carry through what they feel is the best military campaign to support their interests. So if we keep in mind that the same men who are today leading the National Army of South Sudan and the government, because as we know, South Sudan has not had any elections. And when peace came in 2005, the international community was comfortable in basically turning over the sovereignty, the control of South Sudan to the former rebel army. And this former rebel army, now national army, is still in charge. And there are probably around 30 individuals who were key players back in the 1980s. And they are still the key players. So I'm going to try and discourage us from looking at at this violence as purely a cultural phenomena. Because the reality is South Sudan is a militarized nation led by the military, supported by other militaries. When you look at the fact that, you know, Western countries, East Bloc countries continue to support South Sudan militarily, all the resources are captured by the military. There are many other parts of South Sudanese society that have absolutely no recourse to the fact that the military continues to dominate everything in South Sudan. So just as we don't want to particularly say that this group has inflicted violence purely because it's within their culture, yes, this is a a country that has experienced violence for a really long time because they're now in a new civil war and the previous North-South war was more than two decades long. And before that, we had the colonial period and before that and on and on. But I would say that this military model has been so privileged that in some ways there's been absolutely no disincentive to continue this kind of infliction of violence on the wider population, including youth and children, in pursuit of military aims. And so I'm really glad you answered that way, essentially, um, because I think this does come out clearly in your book, just how many of the key figures that we meet early on in the narrative you're telling about the regional leader who recruited this many children here and the regional leader who recruited this many here they're recognizable names if you follow South Sudanese politics recently. Um, And their thread continues throughout the book. And in this answer, in this idea of 
the militarized society, um, that it's not accidental that there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of people at the top purposely privileging the military. Um, why do you think the use of child soldiers and youth soldiers continues to be something that happens maybe to a less degree, but is still to some degree an embedded practice, particularly as you said, well, there's no incentives to not be a military society. But interestingly, there is a lot of international pressure to not use children. And there are instances in your book where you show that the leaders acknowledge that and they they will make claims like, oh, no, they're not soldiers. They're just helping cook or they're helping with something else, that, they, that the children are not fighters. But they also don't seem to do much to try and hide the fact that these children and youth are actually fighting. So is that simply that they are aware of the pressure but can get away with it? What explains in this highly militarized practice the continued or sustained use of children and youth fighters? I think it's pure utility. When you take underaged youth and put them in uniform and put them through training, you do not have to pay them. You do not even have to feed them. And as I write in the book, these irregular militias that have been created from the time of 2005 and the Comprehensive Peace Agreement right through to independence in 2011, in the months and if not year and a half preceding the outbreak of the new war in December 2013, throughout areas of South Sudan that were controlled by the state, commanders continued to take underage youth. I live in Cairo. There is a growing number of young men, particularly from Bar al-Ghazal, who are coming to Cairo because they do not want to be taken into any of these irregular forces or even the national army. It just continues. Yes, in theory, there is an international campaign against the use of child soldiers. But I think it's wise to remember that in the run-up to the independence of South Sudan in 2011, there was a terrific amount of goodwill towards South Sudan. And this is in part because of the way Northern Sudan was represented for a very long time. So we had a situation of the good guys and the bad guys. And South Sudan, as represented by the SPLA, were positioned as the good guys. And what I witnessed over the last 15 years has been a kind of, you know, well, there are a few hundred child soldiers left, but, you know, these are guys who just turned up at the barracks. There's been a kind of free pass for South Sudan. And people have kind of rationalized without looking more closely at what exactly is happening. And yes, there are non-state actors who are continuing to take underage soldiers. But I would argue that it continues to be mostly the state that is taking underage soldiers. And as we've seen when it comes to the U.S. government's, the Child Protection Act, which is meant to prevent the recruitment of child soldiers, the last three, four American administrations have given South Sudan a waiver. They know that there are underage soldiers. 
but they continue to give a waiver because the Child Protection Act is meant to prevent the U.S. government from providing military aid and training to any country that continues to use underage soldiers. And every year, whether it's George Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump, they give South Sudan a waiver. So we do need to think about the geopolitics. We do need to think about the fact that these individuals who have been engaged in this campaign to take underage soldiers, they're the same men who've been doing it for over three decades, and there has been no cost to them. I mean, it just is what it is. And as we know, the international community, its engagement in South Sudan, there tends to be a kind of Groundhog Day phenomena. South Sudan is not an easy place. It's difficult to move around. There are linguistic problems. There are gatekeepers. But generally, I think it's been very hard for the international community to look clearly at what has happened over the last four decades. I'm hopeful that if my book is read by people, if other people are writing more detailed accounts of what happened during these years, that we might get past a bit of this kind of, you know, virtual South Sudan. There's been a failure to look more honestly at how the place functions. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and it brings me nicely to the last section of our interview, which focuses perhaps less on the overall arguments you're making in the book, which you've wonderfully summed up to a degree there, um, and more on the sort of research process side of it. Um, so first off, you've already mentioned that this is a challenging topic to get real information about for a number of reasons. Um, people are still in charge. It is a difficult, South Sudan is a difficult place to visit for logistical reasons, for linguistic reasons. Um, in Canada, it's hard to find people and have them be willing to talk to you. In the book, you also talk about the challenges of the Cuba veterans reconnecting with their South Sudanese families creates challenges for them. They had created their own sort of internal cultures within Cuba. As you said at the very beginning, they spoke Spanish um, and there were a lot of behavioral pressures from their South Sudanese families to be a certain way. Do talk about this. Don't talk about that. So what kinds of challenges did you face in your research in terms of particularly the strong ties of loyalty or kinship um, in being able to find any of this out? Do you know, when I think about all of it now, because I've known some of these men and women for over 20 years now, they were incredibly welcoming to me. And it was partly because I had lived in their home country. And, you know, the six degrees of separation, if you, you know, list enough names, somebody's related to somebody else. But they were incredibly welcoming to me. I spent many a weekend in the town of Brooks, where the slaughterhouse was, hanging with everybody. And at one point, one of the South Sudanese who had gone to Cuba as the headmaster for the school in the Isle of Youth, he asked me if I could find some maps because all these young people didn't know the geography of their home country. I was treated with terrific generosity. And I think the fact that I knew 
something of the background of South Sudan, having lived in Sudan in the 80s and having stayed on top of things, working as a journalist before, I was, you know, respectful of the fact that there are reasons why people cannot talk about things. And so I guess I made a choice to go extremely slowly. But I think the other thing is there are no secrets among South Sudanese. Everybody knows everything. And they do talk about things. But I'm very glad now that I was not in a hurry to finish this book. Because 10 years ago, when I finished the doctoral thesis, it would have been a very different book. Because I wasn't that confident of some of the things I suspected. I needed more time. I think that there's been a desire amongst all these veterans to respect their families, keeping in mind that there are risks to speaking openly about the things that were done. And on that point, I think that it's been really kind of surprising, but not surprising, the Red Army veterans themselves, who've been very careful not to speak out about the things that happened to them, there's a bit of a, a shift. A couple of weeks ago, one of the veterans who now lives in the U.S. posted an hour-long video on YouTube, and he spoke in Arabic and English. He had read a review of my book. He was supportive of his conclusions. And he said, we have to stop the lying because they've all been trapped in this fake narrative of what the Red Army was and what their experiences were in the SPLA. Wow. What an amazing thing to see. Um, this is the question I always ask is my second to last question, but I almost hesitate to ask it to you because the book does have so many of these incredible details that don't always get included. But I'm going to ask anyway, because who knows? In the years of research, can you share one or two things that you may have come across that were particularly surprising that may or may not have gone into the book? Often these are things that people find in the archives that don't end up getting included. But was there anything big, small, God included, didn't, that's particularly stuck with you? Do you know, this is, this whole journey of learning things, I feel extremely grateful that I've had this time and access and been able to attempt to record the things that happened to these individuals. I think the thing that most shocked me as I began to realize the implications was how systemic and how organized everything was. These youth who joined the SPLA and became known as the Red Army, they didn't just get up one morning and start walking to the border with Ethiopia. There were boats, there were trucks, there were even helicopters at one point. But the narrative that's been allowed to stand for a very long time has been a very romanticized one about the agency of youth. And, and that has left me feeling, you know, regretful that in some ways the research that's been done on the region, God knows it's very challenging, 
But, you know, you need time to actually figure things out. But the second thing, and this really hit me as I was finishing the book, you know, touching base with some of these men and women that I've known for a really long time, people whose fathers were killed in internal fighting within the SPLA, whose fathers were founders of the SPLA, they're really committed to the idea of the information being published. But they're still wary of linking themselves to the information. And a lot of these veterans, maybe they're in their mid-40s, their mid-50s now, there's a real sorrow because they know that what was done to them wasn't humane. And there are huge regrets because in the decade since independence, as we know, South Sudan has faced more and more problems. And internally, there's inter-ethnic fighting, there's ethnicized warfare, there are huge weaponized situations over land. And so for any of these Red Army veterans, there's dismay at the sacrifices that were made and the fact that they've basically been kind of disappeared their sacrifices have not been truly acknowledged by the state. And I think there's a sorrow in feeling that they've been sidelined, that they don't have a role to play in South Sudan now. And, you know, there's disarray in a new civil war. And that, I think, is a kind of crushing realization as I was wrapping up the book. You know, these are middle-aged men and women. They've married, they have kids. But there's a sorrow of what was lost. And they never forget their colleagues, their comrades from the early years when they were put on these marches to Ethiopia, when they went into training. They don't forget the ones who died. An impactful note to ask my last question on. What are you working on now or next? Do you know, part of me wants to do something that's a little lighter in tone, but another part of me wants to carry on weaving this tapestry. And I'm very fortunate to have access to a lot of different parts of South Sudan. And I have been working on research towards explaining in more detail the events immediately preceding and after the outbreak of violence in Juba in December 2013. But part of me just wants to uh, you know, write a nice biography of the Sudanese painter Hussein Sharif or you know, something about photography. But I probably will proceed with this research into how things fell apart in December 2013. Well, I'm sure it will be very interesting regardless of what you choose to work on. Um, And in the meantime, while you decide what comes next, um, listeners can read your book, which is titled The Child Soldiers of Africa's Red Army, The Role of Social Process and Routinized Violence in South Sudan's Military, published by Routledge in 2022. I believe, or 2021? 2022. 2022, that's what I thought. Uh, Thank you for correcting me. Um, 
and they can follow your work as well. Reminder, this is Dr. Carol Berger, who's shared a wonderful amount of knowledge with us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Miranda.